we see by the title there. Again, the title is part of the inspired word of God. He says, give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon, and, and this is Mount Hermon, but Siron like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood and the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. So we finish Psalms of the Cross as we looked at Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. There's another little series that is contained here in the book of Psalms. And this is going to be obviously the first in that series, Psalm 29. And it speaks of the storm. The storms of our life, well, the storms of our life in our unsaved state, but also in our saved state and the hardship that we can go through. It also, well, when we go to Psalm 30 next week, we'll be looking at a psalm of deliverance. And then in Psalm 31, we'll be looking at a psalm of good courage. I think the reason why the Psalms have been such a blessing for me is in how applicable and how illustrative they are to every situation and circumstance of life. The things that David and the various other psalmists went through are a lot of the same things that we go through as well. And with them, you see so many times the point of despair, but we also see the great hope that we have in God as the psalmist turns to the Lord and remembers that God is seated upon the throne understands the magnitude again of the love that God has for him as an individual that God thinks upon him as he understands how how valuable the word of God is and how strong even as we see in Psalm 29 the voice of the Lord and what God is able to accomplish in a person's life and again these are things that are placed in the Bible as the psalmist is writing these things so that we would recognize these things. And these aren't just things that happened to King David. Psalm 29, it was written by David, but this isn't David's psalm. This is our psalm. This is each individual's psalms. Psalms, the psalms are theology and doctrine in action. And religion, I had a past religious life before relational life, and I always felt so far removed. There was always God and the priest and everybody else. We just went to church to visit once a week. The priest just filled in every once in a while to the hardships of our, of our life and the goings-on in our lives. In relationship, we see that God is truly the God of our daily lives. Matter of fact, not even just our daily lives, but every moment of our life. It's why Paul said to pray without ceasing because God is always there and God always has an ear to lend towards us. God cares and interacts in the life of the psalmist in ways that we can't relate to, but he interacts and cares for us. And even though it's hard to consider why, but God loves us simply because he loves us and he cares for us because we are his. And so the Psalms, as we've been seeing, God's songbook, but really the poetic writings of God as how he moves in the lives of men and women. 
We need to see the reality. We need to see the practicality in these psalms. We have to look at it from that standpoint in order to see how they blend into our lives. Charles Spurgeon said, The eighth psalm is to be read by moonlight when the stars are bright. The 19th psalm needs the rays of the rising sun to bring out its beauty. Psalm 21, I'm sorry, Psalm 29 can best be rehearsed beneath the black wing of the tempest, the glare of the lightning, or amid that dubious dust which heralds the war of the elements or in the midst of a storm. I remember we were on vacation. We went to Washington, and we had some friends that lived in Virginia, so we went down to the area of Virginia, and we stayed at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. And in our hotel room, I don't second or third floor, maybe a little higher, I don't recall. But we had a sliding glass door, and when you open the drapes, you just look down the Chesapeake Bay. And the Chesapeake Bay is just huge. Well, one night, it was the last night we were there, from what I remember, God put on this amazing display, this storm. It was in May, so it was, you know, going on a, a, a summer storm. And the rain just poured and poured and poured. And then all of a sudden, you heard the rumbling in the sky. And again, you can look. We had the the drapes open. It was at night, and you could look down the bay, and all of a sudden, the bay, just these flashes of lightning. You would see the lightning bolts coming down from the sky, and it would just illuminate. And and, and some of the thunder, you can even feel it as it was bouncing off your chest. And there's something just majestic about it. There's definitely something mighty about it. And there's also something that kind of strikes a little bit of fear in your heart as well about it. I mean, nothing does that like just the raw power, especially when you have no control over it. When an earthquake comes, where do you run? I mean, what do they tell you to do? Get underneath your door? What happens when the whole house falls down? I mean, I've seen houses that have been destroyed and the door jam is not still standing. It's part of the rubble. That means you're going to be part of the rubble. But is your house going to fall down? Is your neighbor's house going to fall down? How do you know that the person standing out in the middle of the street is going to get killed and you're not or vice versa? You just don't know. So in the midst of a storm, you just do the best you can. Strong winds, even here, a summer storm that can go pretty hard. But we just realize how, how, how insignificant we are in the midst of these things. Storms in the Bible are often used to describe the power of God. If you think about it, the writers back in that day had nothing else to compare this power and might and strength of God to. Ontario, since we've taken over the airport, I've noticed there's been more airplanes. Anybody else notice that? There's been more flights, and we're in the path. Once they take off and they curve around, they fly over our house. Sometimes it seems as if you need to open the door and let the airplane through. But when you hear of that, that, that strength of those motors, as you can hear them in the distance revving up, and as they go over your house, you just hear of that loud and, and all. Well, the psalmist didn't have anything like that to compare to, so he would compare to the things of nature, especially David as he experienced these elements, as he was exposed to them as he was a, a shepherd. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 8, it says, The earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Matthew 27, 51, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and rocks were split. So in the midst of a storm that could easily bring terror, the psalmist finds in his heart to praise God. 
Just to praise God. Again, that storm is that which is bigger and more powerful than you. Again, you never know where disaster could hit. But he finds contentment where he is in relationship to his God. And so it's in the midst of it as he understands that these things that seem so powerful and so huge and so beyond him, they pale in comparison to the power of God. They pale in comparison to the ability of God. They pale in comparison in what God has already done in his life. So again, we, we think of, of, of a baby as it's born, or maybe even ourselves on our birthday, and just that miracle, I say our birthday, the day we were birthed, that, that miracle of creation and what God has done. But then look at the day of our salvation and the miracle that God has done in our lives then. And again, we need to visit those two occurrences of the mighty hand of God within our lives and be reminded that that same mighty hand of God, that hand is so powerful that is exemplified through the creation of God, is the same hand that, that keeps us, that watches over us, and that protects us. And sometimes it doesn't seem as so. And we'll, we'll see this as we move on in this series of Psalms. But again, the psalmist, sometimes he starts looking at his surroundings, just like Peter as he was walking on the, on the water. I was teaching that at the convalescent home. <clears throat> and uh, one of the guys that goes with me, Fred, he's not here tonight, but <clears throat> Fred asked me, was Peter's problem more a problem of faith or focus? Well, I don't know that Peter ever lost faith because remember, he, he got out of the boat. Nobody else got out of the boat. And he did walk on the water for just a little bit, but the issue was he lost focus, and we can so easily lose focus, focus upon the Lord, and it feels like in the midst of the storm that we're starting to go down, we're starting to go under. And so a lot of King David's psalms, you'll see there's times that he loses focus, his focus upon the Lord. But when he brings God and the magnitude of who God is back into focus, that's there. it's there when his faith is strengthened and his hope is shored up. So in the midst of a storm that could easily bring terror, the psalmist finds in his heart once again to praise God, just to worship God in the midst of these overwhelming things. Psalm 29 has three main stanzas to it. First are verses 1 and 2. What we see here is the desire for the worship and praise of God to be intensified. And secondly, in verses 3 through 9 is the storm. And then in verses 10 through 11 is the hindsight. And hindsight's important. Hindsight is we contemplate on the things that have happened as we remember how God has moved in our lives, as we remember the hopelessness that we had according to our own abilities and what we're able to do, and we weren't able to deliver ourselves whatsoever. But to realize that God's mighty hand entered into our lives, yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, but also even after the salvation, just again in our daily lives, how God meets us and how God comforts us. We see that this is a psalm that praises God very intently and that power displayed in the storm is at David's disposal and is at our disposal as well. Again, as we pointed out before, we saw it in Psalm 23, or maybe it was Psalm, it was Psalm 24, well, both of them. But in most of the Psalms, if you put the first verse and the last verse together, you get a good idea of what the Psalm is about. And so doing that here in Psalm 29, verse 1 and verse 11, it says, Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. And then it says, The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And so 
there's the giving of God, his glory, God doing well for his people as we worship him, as we praise him. So again, verse 1 and 2, a psalm of David. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The desire for the worship and praise of God to be intensified. And so if another aspect of the psalms that we've seen, if you look at previous psalm, many times it runs into the next psalm. And it's interesting, if you look at the last two verses of Psalm 28, verses 8 and 9, it says, The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. And it's almost as if this is a response. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. And so King David, King David wants God to be worshipped to a degree that He's just not able to do. And really, when he speaks of mighty ones, he's really, that's a reference to angels in heaven. He understands that God is seated upon the throne. And and this is an encouragement, really, through an expression of his heart. But as God is seated upon his throne, and he can't be there, not understanding how Christ has opened up the gates at his sacrificial death and all of that. But he just knows that as God is on the throne, he is worthy and due the praises of all of creation. And so he's encouraging those who are in the temple, the temple of God, in the throne room of God, to worship him. Again, O you mighty ones or mighty sons, it's a reference to angels. And it's this picture that we have in the scriptures uh, of God and and God being worshipped in his throne room. We see that in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his faith, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So it speaks of the consuming glory of God, and these angels even protecting themselves from that. And verse 3, and one cried to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And so again, we've got this picture of the throne room of God. And we've got this picture of this might and this power that's in there. And God's holy majesty and his glory as it fills this place. And these angels who are in there, even as David back in in Psalm 29 is encouraging them to do so, they're worshiping God Holy, holy, holy. And it's again the same thing that we see in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. Some have made reference that that speaks of the Trinity of God, and and maybe that's possible, but really what I think is, I think that's holiness to its fullness. This is the unobtainable majesty of God, and God is holy beyond how we will ever be holy. This is holiness to even the third degree, and it's his holiness or his absolute purity is what radiates in the throne room of God, that which is absolutely good, and that's what is absolutely right. And so you put all of those pieces together and you come back to Psalm 29 and you're realizing as these storms are going on, it's under the control of God. 
as the trials are entering into our lives, they're orchestrated by the Lord for purpose within our lives. As God is holy, as he has absolute rightness, the things that he allows in our lives are absolutely right in what is necessary for that time. They're going to be hard and they're going to be difficult, but they're going to achieve God's will and God's desire. So what fills David and the angels with this desire of praise is the salvation that we can have from the storm as well. In verse, uh, verses 8 and 9 again, the Lord is their strength, and this is in the previous chapter, and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. When he comes to the 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 understanding of what God has done in these areas within his own life, it's then, I can't enter in because Christ has not paid the price yet. But, I mean, from King David's perspective, I can't enter in, but angels worship him. It's just my desire to see God, to see God lifted up. Verse 2, give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. We see two ways, not two means. There's a lot of means in which we worship God, but two ways that God is to be praised here. First of all is giving him the glory due his name. This is by acknowledging his supreme worth with our minds, worshiping him in spirit. Because of what we see in Exodus chapter 34, remember the definition of his name. So we're giving him the glory due, the nature and the essence of who God is. We're worshiping God because he is merciful, because he has not given you what you deserve. We worship God because he is gracious, because he has given you what you have not deserved, because he is long-suffering, because he puts up with us. He suffers long with us in our disobedience and even outright rebellion. Because of his goodness, he is absolutely good in all that he does. Because of truth, he is the foundation of our worldview and our lives and that which just makes sense in, in, in this world. Because of his forgiveness, he has chosen to remember our sins no more. And because of his judgments, his judgments are true and his judgments are absolutely right. So not just the glory due his name, but also the second way he is to be praised is through our worship. And this is just the idea behind the worship here is just simply bowing down before him to submit ourselves before his majesty, to understand that he is truly the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But more importantly than that, he's my king and he's my Lord. It's one thing to be a king, and anybody can randomly be a king or whatever, but he's my king, he's, he, he's my Lord. And the only way you truly understand that is through the life that you live. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Well, you would need to answer that question correctly, or honestly, you would need to examine your life. Am I obedient to the things that he says? Have I sat in Bible study after Bible study, heard the commands and heard the call of the Lord and ignored those things, then he's not really the Lord of your life. He's only the Lord of your life if you're obedient. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? And so we have this responsibility to have an ear to hear what the Spirit has to say, but also to follow through in the things that God has called us to do. And the beauty of it is, whatever it is that God has called you to do to serve Him, God will enable you to do these things. There speaks of, the Bible speaks of, in Galatians chapter 5, the fruits of the Spirit. These are the results 
those who are born again or those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we worship him because of who he is. We lay down our will before him. We sacrifice our will, the things that we desire in our lives. Our minds, we give of our minds that he would teach us and train us, instruct us. The desires that we have of our life, and we just say, here I am, Lord, use me. Isaiah did that, and God used him in ways that I would imagine Isaiah never even thought possible, and how many, how many more so in the word of God. And so... Again, verse 2, give, give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. What we see the angels doing naturally, we must learn to do. I must learn to set aside my will, my mind, my desires, and give of these things over to him. I must be of the mindset to purposely drop to my knees before him and to give him the praise due to him. And I say that, and, and again, it's in so many different areas of our lives, but just look at the area that we refer to as worship. I mean, when you hear worship, you think of the half hour before the teaching starts. Are you prepared to worship the Lord when you come into this place? Because really, the preparation comes before you, you get in here. It, it's the knowledge that I'm entering in to the presence of God. Now, you're always in the presence of God. It doesn't matter where you are. But when you come into the church, you should have an awareness, a higher awareness that I'm entering into the presence of God. And so if you were going over to somebody's house that you, oh, if the president invited you to the White House, you wouldn't just go walking in there. Here I am. You would be thinking, OK, do I, I know the president? What's his wife's name, his children's name? What do I wear? And you want to know the proper protocol and all of those things, because this is a privilege. It's a privilege to enter into the house of God. It's a privilege to come before him. And as we come before him, I need to be of the mindset of preparing myself. Is there something I need to be repented of? Something that is, that is going to hinder my worship of him? Is there going to be something in my life that is going to hinder me hearing from God or God hearing my praise or my prayer? And to examine our lives before we come in and as we enter in, truly then as we're able to sit down or stand up as the worship starts, we're truly able to open our hearts before the Lord and to worship him. Because again, that's what David is doing. And again, it's based upon verses 8 and 9 of the previous chapter of the salvation and what God has done for mankind. And David is just desiring for, for God to, to be worshipped in ways that really are beyond our ability because we worship him in our spirit, our personality, and our truth. But it's God who allows this to do it. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, it says, rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, he's speaking specifically from, of a wife to her husband, but Jesus often uses the illustration of the church to him. And may I have that gentle and precious spirit, that incorruptible beauty, that be, to be very precious in the sight of the Lord as I offer my worship to God. Verses 3 through 9, we now enter into the storm. I'll read verses 3 and 4. It says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. So just as these things can be so overwhelming, these storms, God his voice is over. His voice is higher. His voice is more powerful than these things that he sees. So God... God will use the trials in my life. So he uses the storms to get our attention, 
but the overriding factor of these things needs to be to hear the voice of the Lord. So if you call him Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that he says, he brings a storm into your life that you would hear the voice of the Lord, the more powerful voice of God. And so as I hear that, that, well, I would be obedient to what he has called me to. So I would imagine David probably is thinking in the back of his mind of the storms that rise up over the Mediterranean Sea and is preparing to sweep over Israel. Apparently there's a certain storm system that goes from north to south. That seems to be what is being described here. We'll look at that in a little bit. But it's the storm either season or just this dynamic of a a particular storm that he has um, experienced before. And so David knows that God, a verse in one and two, who is worthy to be worshipped, is the Lord of this and the Lord of all storms. The storm as could be a trial again or something that the Lord sends into David's life for his particular purpose. So it's important to understand and to know that God is the God of the storms. And what I mean by that is these aren't just random happenings. God allows these things to come in and to go out. We just suffered drought here in California. And one of the things in the midst of the drought that we come to the realization, we already know it, but you come to a realization, it's not a thing we can do to make it rain. You know, all of our technology and all the things that man is able to do, all of the manipulation, it's only God that brings the storm, the needed storm and I present to you that these are needed storms because there's change needed in the life of the psalmist. And so I cannot look at storms, these things that go on as just out of control calamities, but I need to understand, I need to know that there's something orchestrated by the hand of God for his intentions. And so you look at David's life, and we've studied David's life in detail. The women have done it in their small groups, and so on and so forth. And we see, we'll look at one of the major storms. You know how they give names to storms in our day? Well, David experienced storm King Saul. I mean, here's David. He's been anointed by Samuel as being king. And just think of how difficult that must be. We always want things so instantly. But here Samuel has come, looked at all of David's brother, and here he is, the youngest of them all. That would be the position of the least honor amongst the family. And here this prophet has poured the oil over him and anointed him as king. Now just think what happens. The, The prophet leaves. What did David do? I think David just went back to work, went back to tending sheep. Had to be a hard thing, and so he's probably thinking, what next? Well, God's working things out, and God brings him into the palace, and he's probably thinking, well, King Saul is here. How is this working? But David was really good about that, just submitting himself to the will of God. And Saul rebels against David, and I would imagine he understood the anointing that was upon David. He tried to throw spear at him a few times and whatnot, but anyway, David ran from the palace, and Saul sought to kill him. Finally, Saul convened his army together, and they were searching for David in the wilderness. And they could never, never trap him. Any time that they were about to get him, he was always delivered by God. King David was always delivered by God. But there was a couple of times that David had opportunity. One time in a cave, another time in a camp. And, and, and David had the opportunity right there before him, but he knew it wasn't up to him to manipulate. He, he can't just, remember we saw in James, you can't just make the storm go away. You can't just make the trial stop. 
Because if you do that, you're just going to have another one and it's going to be bigger and it's going to be badder. It's going to be more difficult because God is going to cause his will to come to pass. He even had one of his officers with him and his officer says, I'll run him through right now. Saul was there asleep right before him. He was vulnerable before him. I'll run him through right now. And David says, far be it from me that I would touch God's anointed. He said, this, this storm, this man who wants to kill me, this is all according, for whatever reason, according to the will of God. I know that God has the throne of Israel for me, and I don't really understand how that can even come about. It seems impossible at this point. Matter of fact, it seems more possible that this man is going to kill me than I would be able to ascend to the throne in Israel. But he always knew, he always understood that regardless, it's all in the hands of God. And that's part of a big reason why David is described as a man after God's own heart. Acts chapter 13, verse 22. He just was able to depend upon the Lord in the midst of these difficulties. And so we're in the midst of a difficulty. How in the world am I ever going to get out of this one? This thing just seems to bury me. How am I going to dig myself out of this one? You just find contentment in God wherever you are at. And God will move and God will see that his work is done. I'm not saying you just do nothing. You seek after the Lord and you just ask God, what's the next step that I should take? And then you take that step. And then you pray and ask God, what is the next step after that? And through obedience, you take a series of steps and God works. Verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And so have you ever been in an approaching storm, especially in the Midwest? We were in Oklahoma. Blue sky, and you can just see forever. Oklahoma is like as flat as flat can be. It's one of the plain states, at least where my, uh, my wife grew up. And so we were there, and somebody was saying, hey, here comes a storm. It's like, Where? See that there? It's kind of like what we see in the scriptures, a storm of clouds, the hand, size of a man's fist. But you saw the, the little cloud, and here it comes, here it comes. You can see lightning. Everything else is blue around it, and it came, and then all of a sudden it just poured on us, and then the storm left. And that's how storms go. You see them coming. They come. They're intense, but then they move on. Every hardship that we have ever entered into, we've also entered out of. Verses 5 through 7 the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Now, this, this would be similar <clears throat> to the, um, the redwood trees up in Northern California, the sequoias. <clears throat> we went into, uh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was one of the, the sequoia groves that were up, up north. And um, you'd see a lot of redwood trees as you're entering into the park, and then boom, all of a sudden you see a sequoia. You see this huge tree that's a lot wider and a lot taller than everything else. And you see these huge trees. So again, he, he, he couldn't speak of you know, the World Trade Center or one of these things that man thinks are uh, undestroyable. But so he, he's using the illustration of what he knows and he understands these cedars of Lebanon and how strong and how mighty they are. Hey, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Saron, which would be Mount Hermon, which was one of the highest mountains in Israel, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. So even the forest fire, whatever fires, brush fires that he's seen, God's got those under control as well. And so he's understanding that the voice of the Lord's got these things. They're under the control of God. 
I was reading something somewhere, I don't remember where, it was about Lyndon B. Johnson. Lyndon B. Johnson, everybody should know, was president of the United States in the 60s after Kennedy. One of the things he had on his desk was the plaque, and it said, some, he's from Texas, so it's kind of a down-homey advice, or at least saying that, I guess, encouraged him during hard times. But he said, sometimes in the midst of a hailstorm, you need to be like a donkey. You just need to hump over and take it. And the idea is you just need to ride out the storm because there's nothing that you're able to do. Now, don't get me wrong in that. We don't just ride out storms, but sometimes when we don't understand what's going on and God has not chosen to fill us in in the details, our trust is is just to endure what is going on and continue to move forward in what we know to do, what we know to be right to do. Now, when you fall into a hard, falling, when you come into a hardship, have you been into those situations when you just feel like you're just completely overwhelmed and, and you, you don't know which way to turn and it just seems so insurmountable and there's no way that you're ever going to get out of it? Again, just stop and do what you know to do. And, and sometimes it's the most elementary things of our faith that you need to do. You need to either, when you don't know what to do, when you feel overwhelmed or even buried... Just drop to your knees and pray. Try, try it. I mean, it's not so much a formula thing, but just do it. Just, just literally drop to your knees or fall to your face and pray out loud and, and see what God does with that. And then open up God's word. And I'm not saying just kamikaze, just you know, drop your Bible and wherever it opens, just start reading. But just part of your prayer is God speak to me and wherever God directs you in his word, and, and see what he has to say. Because, again, this is conversation in the midst of relation. This is speaking to God through prayer, and then God speaking to us through his word. And, and, and just admitting, Lord, that I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do, and I don't know which way to turn. But I know that you are God of this situation, and I know that I am your child. Verses 8 and 9, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. So we looked at the cedars of Lebanon, which would have been in the northern part of the country. The wilderness of Kadesh would be on the way into Egypt. So this would be at the extreme south of the country. So again, this storm is something that engulfs the totality of, of God's people. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says glory. And so again, the storm has covered the whole nation, everybody, everywhere. We all have to deal with hardship, sometimes national hardship, sometimes individual hardship. But again, the idea behind all of this is the voice of the Lord. That term is mentioned seven times. It's the number of completion. It's the totality of God and God's able to govern over all of creation. How many days of creation? Really six days of creation, but on the seventh day he rested. And so it's the totality of what God does. It's the totality of the involvement of God through the word of God, which makes all the difference. It's why Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel or the word of God, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. So the storm, is, again, is this picture of God as he is directing through his word. It covers all of creation. It brings men to repentance, and it offers mankind salvation. God's word is the most powerful force in all of the earth. 
And then lastly, verses 10 through 11, we have the hindsight. Verse 10. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And so David, looking back, realized that, well, again, the Lord, just as he sat enthroned at the flood, can you imagine when the whole earth is being flooded? He was in total control. Everything was going according to his ways. It rained for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. You know why it didn't rain for 39 days and 39 nights? Because God said it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. On the other hand, you know why it didn't rain for 41 days and 41 nights? Because God's, you getting my drift here? Because God was seated upon the throne. He was sat at the place of authority while that trial was going on. Can you imagine Noah and the ark? Hearing people yelling, pounding, I would guess, on the side. But even if that aside, being in that storm and wondering, you know, is this thing going to fall apart? But also knowing that it's God who, who sealed this in. It's God who has kept us because God sits enthroned at the flood. And not only in Genesis, but throughout all of creation. It's God's people who have strength, comfort, and peace because of it. Noah and his family were able to write it out because, again, what did God tell him? God, number one, told him to build the ark. But then God said, come into the ark. He didn't say go into the ark. He said, come into the ark. Why would he say come into the ark? Because that's where God was. God was calling Noah unto himself. Come into the ark. And then it says that God sealed him into the ark. And nobody was going to be able to get in. No water was going to be able to get in. Nobody was going to be able to get out. But the idea here is, is that God kept him. God's able to keep us. And came that day of deliverance when the water subsided and Noah was released from the ark. But as joyful as that day, it pales in comparison to the joy that we will have when the trials and the storms of this life are over and we enter into the glory of God. No longer are we going to have to pray to those angels, hey, you guys worship him up there. We'll be up there and we'll be worshiping the Lord. What are the final words that the church, that you guys, that born-again believers will hear concerning judgment? Because we're told we're not going to be judged for the purpose of condemnation, but we're going to be judged for the purpose of our works. But the final words that I'm going to hear is, well done, enter in. Because entering in was never based upon my works. And I want to do well. I want to do or live a life that is worthy of that. Now, those who are unbelievers, it's going to be a storm like they've never imagined. Their final words, depart from me, I never knew you. And so we have God. God seated upon the throne. Storms are going to happen in this life. But the word of God is more powerful. And it's the word of God that protects us. It's the word of God that enables us. It's the word of God that gets us through, gets us through to the other side. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 through 31, he gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Whatever storm that you're in right now, God's greater than it. God's got it. 
Father, I just pray, Lord, that we would be able to be receptive of, of, Lord, just your word and the encouragement that your word offers. Again, seven times, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. And I pray, God, that we would continually have a heart to hear the voice of the Lord. And I pray that our contentment would be in that. And so, Father, the voice of the Lord, it springs forth from your word. There's no doubt. It springs forth from the encouragement of brothers and sisters. It springs forth in our heart as we're directed by your spirit. And I pray, God, that we would forever have an ear to hear what the voice of the Lord has to say. And so, Father, we just lift not only ourselves up tonight, I I just thank you, God, for bringing brothers and sisters together and pray for those who come out that you would watch over and keep them. I pray for those who maybe are on the Internet, wherever they may be, that are listening to this right now, God, that you would bless them. I pray for maybe those who are going in or are in the midst of a storm, that, Father, you would watch over them and meet them there and lead them through it. And so, Father, we just thank you, God, for the magnitude of the love that you have for us. Pray that we would be receptive of it. Pray, Father, that we would be obedient to the call of the voice of our Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We all stand, please. I was looking at our Facebook site. We stream our services live on Facebook, and somebody from Melbourne... Australia was was watching one of our services, and we have somebody that um, lives, I don't remember where, but in Kentucky, who calls our church their church because they watch our services on the internet. And so it's just a blessing to be able to, the voice of the Lord, and see how far it extends. Um, Woman of the Cross, uh, the women's retreat, the last day to sign up is going to be this Sunday, so if you're planning on going, the last moment is upon us even right now. Sunday morning, I'll be giving a Mother's Day message. We will not be having a Sunday evening service. Have a great rest of the week. I'll see you Sunday morning. God bless you all. So we're not ending with a fast song, but let us just, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) let's just take this time to...